We're in Hebrews chapter 6 again this morning. It's a bit of a shift this morning as we look further into Hebrews chapter 6 with verse 10. And I trust that you'll immediately see that as I bring it to your attention. Uh, as we do every week, I would like to read again the, the relevant passages, uh, verses before, so that we receive the proper context. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 dealing with uh, the danger of not progressing, the danger of really the lack of sanctification, the lack of being changed by the message and the person of Christ. And in verse 4 it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being buried. Then last week we read verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is, is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we meet today, Lord, and assemble, Lord, to observe a Sabbath of your people to, to rest and to see the spiritual rest and the eternal rest that is in Christ, Lord, we just ask for your grace and your mercy, Lord, your discernment upon the, the word that we may see, he who it is speaking of, God, that we may be sanctified, that we may be uh, progressing Lord, according to your will and by your power, God, we pray that uh, today would be a day of worship unto you, God, that you would receive it and that you would be pleased by it, Lord, that you would give us joyful hearts concerning our Savior, Lord, and joy to even be here and assembled with your saints. God, we just thank you for the word, Lord, and ask for your many blessings and your uh, temporal and spiritual provisions as we go forth where we just uh, magnify and worship you lord and exalt the name of christ lord and ask that you would enable us to do so unto the death of this body in jesus name we pray amen so as we recap what we've seen in the past few weeks we really began a new sort of thought in Hebrews chapter 6 with verse 4 talking about those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted, who have partaken, uh, those who have come to know certain uh, ideas about the Christ, those who have heard about him, those who have some what we would call head knowledge of who Jesus is. And of course that, that was uh, the intent of the gospel that we would know who Christ is but the the purpose of the gospel is that some in hearing of Jesus would come to actually know of this Jesus and in chapter 6 verse 4 we see that some will hear and and we come to a realization that some will hear and as my mother used to say it to go in one ear and out the other and then some will hear and for a season they'll be joyful and for a season they'll look like and maybe uh, maybe deceive us and deceive themselves even as to thinking that they may be disciples of Christ or followers or Christians and they will fall away and here is presented some of that uh, and some of those uh, different camps that we have in regards to hearing the message of Christ. And then we know that there will also be a greater for us, a, a more meaningful and eternal position that will be those who hear the word of Christ and who 
do the will of Christ and who love the righteousness of Christ and so desire it and out of uh, nothing other than obedience and respect and fear for God, they come and stay and continue to walk with the Christ. And uh, I would say that without understanding that particular position, the rest of the positions really don't matter, right? Because if it were not for an effectual gospel and an effectual Savior, indeed all would fall in the camp of hearing without salvation. Hearing and falling away and being enlightened and doing nothing with it. Coming from uh, a state of ignorance to a state of knowledge, but not a, a saving state. Not a state of true repentant faith. But here as we progress by the will of God from verses 8 to verses 9 and 10, we see something different. In, and what it is, is it is something better, something more beneficial, something uh, beyond the temporal knowledge and tasting and partaking that leads into the spiritual partaking and tasting and understanding of Christ. And of course, that is not merely better, but it is best. So when we look at verse 9 last week, it says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Look, there were some that were partaking, some that were enlightened, some that were tasting, some that were even appearing at times to be followers. And the penman is not really convinced of their position. There's staying in Christ. But with verse 9, he says, there is something that we are convinced of. There is something better. There is something greater. There is something higher. And these things don't just accompany a knowledge of Christ. They accompany a knowing intimately of Christ. That is accompanying salvation, to truly know, to not be one who claims Lord, Lord, as we talked about last week, considering those uh, words in Matthew chapter 7, that some will profess and some will say, Lord, Lord, but he'll say, I never knew you. Indeed, this morning we're seeing uh, a perspective of those who actually know him and whom he so intimately and savingly knows and that is most important for us. The first nine verses seem to deal with the perspective of men as well. And we talked about that over the past few weeks. And it, it deals with what, what men must do. And it deals with what men must not do. It deals with what men can do. And it deals with what men are unwilling to do. That is indeed the predicament, I would say, that we are in. The perspective thus far may seem if we take out of context or we take partially the text of Scripture that is declaring, man, this is what you must do. Man, this is what you should do. Man, this is what you cannot do because you are not doing these things. They're revealing the depravity of man. The emphasis this morning is on those first words that we read in verse 10, for God. We could simply take the rest of the verse if we had the ability to do so or if we had um, the authority to do so and we could leave it off and many men could preach a passage on those two words, for God. Up until this point, it seems that Man is the subject. Indeed, that is what the world would see from any passage of Scripture that it indeed seems to be speaking of man from a temporal standpoint. But when we get to verse 10, the words for God tell a different story. Verse 8 really does uh, a few things. Verse 8 leaves man destitute. Consider it again. It says, but it yields thorns and thistles. It's worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. That is leaving man to his own. And in that he is destitute. It leaves man not only destitute, but it leaves man sure for death. 
It's like a, a runaway train, this sin in this body without Christ. And here, beyond that, then into death, we see that it leaves man doomed for destruction. But then we arrive last week at verse 9, and there is, of course, a reminder of hope. Anytime that the Bible speaks of hope, it is not of hope in temporal situations or temporal circumstances, but it is hope that resides and abides and trusts and is built upon an eternal Savior. That is what the intent of verse 10 is to reveal again this reminder of hope with the words that we see. But beloved, we are convinced there is a great reminder. A great reminder that the disciples of Christ are repeating and reminding the church and these particular original recipients, these Hebrew people of. The disciple says, I'm sure of something. What is he sure of? How can he be sure? How can he be so convinced that there are better things yet to come? Which is what he says. We must ask ourselves, in what situation, apart from Christ, can we be sure of anything? And the answer is, there is none. And if we draw an opposite conclusion, that we have hope that this will happen, or we are convinced that this will happen, we must also be real with ourselves and say that that is nothing more than a false hope. Nothing more than self-righteousness, trusting in something that is failing, either it be flesh or money or strength. All of these things, of course, apart from Christ, could fail at any moment. But this disciple is sure of something else. He's convinced of better things. Well, when you read that, it seems that Everything is better than what verse 8 says. Thorns and thistles and being cursed and burned up. But it, it, it's beyond that. You know, it's beyond uh, eternal life even. Because, listen, when, when something is burned, there's nothing left but ashes, right? And so the, the temporal mind would say, well, everything is better than that. Just to stay a little while longer is better than that. And indeed, to live the life in the mortal body uh, even for the unregenerate, is much a grace of God because that is one more moment that he won't spend in hell. But the truth is, we have a side of the disciple that I believe is revealed only in Christ. It's a, it's a side of humility when he says, we are convinced of better things because it's so easily, uh, for us, it's, it's so easy to be caught up and say, pridefully even, maybe, there is something I'm much more convinced of. We can, we can be built up in pride even about the things of Christ. And here I believe there's a humble side of the disciple that says, listen, we're convinced of something better. Not to uh, esteem himself highly uh, as one who has been following Christ longer or one who is more sanctified or one who is more holy than the other. He's simply appealing uh, in a sensitive way to those who may be in danger he's saying look there's something better but in, indeed the the proclamation is there is something that is the best and that's what we may see this morning he is convinced of a delightful outcome at hand a greater yea the greatest ending and that that be to have not an end see there is the question should you temporally profess and place some trust in Christ or the message of the gospel without fully believing, you might as well have not invested any. And he's saying the end is either death and then an eternal life in hell, the punishment, destruction, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, or yea, the greatest ending. What is that? Not merely to escape perishing, to enter into eternal life, but to be present with the Savior in whom 
your hope was founded in to begin with. Message to the church this morning may first be an appeal to rekindle the fire that you have for Christ. To be reminded that your hope began with Him and that is sufficient to begin and that is sufficient to end. And even further spiritually speaking, there would be no end to that trusting and that believing. And which point we must ask ourselves, do we desire even to be here this morning? Do we desire this morning to hear the Word of God? Do we desire to know the Christ of the Bible? Or are we simply rushing to get to the meal afterwards? Are we simply rushing to make it home? Are we more concerned with looking at the hands of our watches rather than the hands of their nail-pierced Savior? There is the question question that we should pose each moment that we breathe the disciple here says this is not the end for some of you there are some who are beloved as he says last week and there is a greater understanding there is something more than what you have yet seen there's more to eternal life than simply continuing to exist, and that is Jesus Christ. The answer that we see this morning in verse 10 really is in those first two words, for God. Elsewhere, we see it, but God. Indeed, that is the way that we should read it this morning. We can summarize even really before we begin uh, the rest of the passage from verse 10 with the words for God. This intends to indicate and to reveal God's sovereignty, God's will. These things are, are, are those two aspects and those two priorities, if you will, and attributes of God that can neither be avoided nor can they be thwarted by His enemies. That is something to rest upon. Indeed, the first eight verses do this. They declare the danger that fallen man is in. Verse 9 and 10 declare to a greater degree than that even the saving truth of the Christ. The saving reality of the gospel. Not a possibility of the gospel, but a reality of the gospel. It's not only possible that men would be saved by the preaching and the understanding and the discernment of the gospel, but it is a truth and a necessity and a reality that there will be some indeed saved by this message. We're reminded because of this greater degree of saving than the great degree of falling away, we're reminded that nothing truly can separate us. Those who are in Christ, those beloved, those elect, those predestined of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. The love of God that was perfected and shown and realized through the person of Christ. To which we say, for what mortal wolf can steal away the sheep of an eternal shepherd. There is a message of the sovereignty of God. What mortal wolf can steal away the sheep of an eternal shepherd? The basis really is what we believe of the reach, the grasp of God. Here, here is the, the point. The Hebrew people up until this time who had professed to know the Christ, they heard the message, the good news of the gospel. They heard about this Jesus whom was the Savior, the Messiah that they had heard of their entire lives, that their uh, forefathers had spoken of. And here he has come. Here he has been uh, crucified, dead, buried, risen, ascended. And they for a moment believe on him, so they say. Some, yes, uh, into everlasting life. Some, not so. But the reality is that all are, are professing here that we have uh, noted are professing some belief in Christ. But what, what the issue is, is how much so 
do they believe in the reach and the grasp of God? The firmness of His grip upon those who belong to Him. That is, again, the second question we must ask today. What do we believe about the reach of God? Well, first, we believe that it is unto every man that the reach of God is possible. That God can save anyone. If you need some proof this morning... Men, ask your wife to pull out their purse and hand you a mirror. There is the reality that God can save anyone. There is the reality of the reach of God. So now we have the reach of God, these everlasting arms. And now we must deal with the grip of God. Something that the penman here is talking about he's not talking about the ability of man to progress but he's talking about the ability and the will of God to grasp and take hold and to never let go so we have the reach of God and then we have the grip of God this morning the complete sovereignty of God there is no sovereignty apart from complete sovereignty it's a conundrum for someone to say something it's foolishness it's like having transportation that doesn't move. A broken down car, it's not transportation. Listen, God without complete sovereignty is not a God. Certainly not the God. Here we're talking about God who has a long, uh, unending reach, a, a firm grip, the firmest of grip, and, and, and indeed one that cannot be undone fulfilling and showing and illustrating his complete sovereignty so much so that even we the professing Christians declare it and then other times we soon forget it every one of us can easily forget the sovereignty of God it's an important Absolutely. The other wonderful part about that is that when we forget that God is sovereign, it's kind of like the Lordship of Christ. Just because we forget it and don't mention it doesn't mean that it fails to exist. The basis is what we believe here about Him, about His Son, Jesus Christ times we bear doubtful minds and doubtful thoughts about the persons of God without even really knowing that we do this. We betray our faith in times when we fail to fully trust. You need an example of this? Ask yourselves, do you worry? When we worry, we are betraying our faith. We are making little and making temporal the sovereignty of God. We're making something less than of that which is an attribute that is everlasting. It's happened sometimes for us to fail to fully trust in God. So the disciple continues here, although he really didn't have to, but he did because of the will of God. He could have ended with the words for God and we could be easily reminded had we simply thought and stopped and carefully, slowly considered those words. He could have stopped, but he didn't so as to remind us of this sovereign and powerful God. He does not leave the words for God alone, but he accompanies them with for God is not unrighteous. If you have a particular uh, English translation, may say in verse 10, unjust. Same manner, the same word, same meaning. If we truly understand justice and righteousness and unjustness, unrighteousness, he's saying really here something that 
Man says he believes, but many don't. And we can see this by simply asking people who the Jesus is that they serve. He is saying this, God is God. When he says, for God is not unjust, we can stop right there and forget the phrase to come after for a moment. He's saying, for God is not unjust. He's saying, because God is God, he cannot be unjust. That is what you have to deal with. Is the God that you are serving, is the God that you are professing, always God? Or have you built up a God of your own imagination? Or even worse, do you believe in the true God, but at times make light of Him? Forget who He is. Uh, the disciple here is saying God is God and he is nothing less. Why? Because he cannot be. Dealing with persons, for lack of a better illustration, because there is not one, we can consider any number of people. No matter how wonderful Miss Cheryl may be today, if she turns into someone much more wicked tomorrow, she'll never cease to be Cheryl. Pat will never cease to be Pat or Barbara, Barbara, such as with God. God will always remain God, nothing less. To which I remember a hymn. After those words, we hear Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing less. Righteousness is the person named Jesus the Christ. He can never cease to be himself. Therefore, it stands that he is never less than Jesus, the man born of the virgin, never less than Jesus, the man who grew weary, Jesus, the man who was tired, Jesus, the man who walked, Jesus, the man who sweat, Jesus, the man who worked with his hands. He never ceased to be this Jesus, the man perfect without sin, Jesus, the loving man, and he is and as well never will be less than the Christ, the Messiah. The one who is so definitively and exhaustively defined throughout the epistle of the Hebrews. With the very beginning, the first words, he is defined in his sovereignty as God. Jesus can never quit being Jesus the man and Jesus the Christ. This is the truth of Hebrews revealed thus far. In essence, this is to declare that he is always salvation. Jesus is always salvation. And that is good. That is better than what we saw from verses 1 to verses 8. It's a wonderful truth declared here in verse 10 that is being woven in with that which we saw last week in verse 9. And that is to say, the best is yet to come. Indeed, by such a sentence such a statement in God's own word here in verses 9 and 10 we may know that people like Joel Osteen do not know the Christ the best is yet to come but there's something that we are forgetting even in that statement the best is yet to come the best life is not indeed now for those who profess Christ and who know Christ as well the fact remains that the best is and was and is to come see because that is what an eternal God an eternal Christ looks like he's not simply a Christ who will save you at your death or who will be there waiting but he is a Christ who as we read this morning lo I am with you always and I was there before you preparing. Listen, the cross was prepared. The timbers were cut, planted in the ground. Those people were sent before us to crucify the Christ so that He may save you. So He may save me. And there is the reality. He did just as it was prophesied. The word here, like I said, in, in the English standard or, or the NASB is unjust. We understand that to be just is to be righteous. In the same way, 
One who is unjust is unrighteous. It can never be uh, any different than that. It can only speak of one person here when it says just or righteous. There is only one. God. Why do you call me good? Jesus said. There is only one good. It can only speak of the God-man in whom faith must be founded. That is saving faith. Remember that. And then I want to just draw your attention back to verse 9 to consider a few things or one particular thing. He's talking about a righteous God who in spite of man's failing will be and shall be saving. And he says it this way, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Isn't this inspired by the Holy Spirit? Why does it seem that the man is saying, we're convinced? You would think he would just say, we know. We know that there are better things. He said, but we're convinced. He's, he's really showing us something there in the choice of those words. Because it's not his choice, it's what the Spirit gave him. He could have said, we know because God has revealed to us that there are better things. But the word here says, we are convinced of, we're sure. But it intends something there. What does it intend? What is it illustrating? I believe that these words are carefully chosen to declare and to illustrate faith. The unseen. The reality that hope is something that we will uh, have fulfilled for us in seeing Christ at the death of the mortal body. It seems... Uh, so simple, so easily overlooked when he says we are convinced, but he's putting on display faith. Trusting in faith. Hey, listen, the Lord doesn't have to come to him and tell him so-and-so is saved and that one is and that one ain't. He says we're convinced. We're trusting in Christ. There is the model of Hebrews being placed before those who are having trouble and uh, and even amidst those who are forever falling away, trusting in Christ. Something that we talked about last week. The evidence of what the disciple is trying to relay in this message, trust in Christ. He goes on, as we read, it says, for God is not unjust. God is never ceasing to be God so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Not to forget your work. And and this may be understood by the carnal mind and this may be understood by the weak mind or the unbeliever that this is the work that you're doing when you come to the church and cut the grass. May or may not be. This may be understood as the work that you're doing when you go on a mission trip and and build a building, which I would say is no mission trip at all. The real mission of a mission trip is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that souls be saved. There's the mission that Christ has given us. Again, we read it this morning to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We may understand this uh, with carnal minds in any number of ways, and they may be generally expressed uh, throughout uh, various works of human hands, but I don't believe that that is the purpose here. Notice again, uh, this is how I understand that it cannot be talking about simply what man is calling a good work. This is not simply talking about a a good deed for the neighbor. Why? Because it says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. What does James say? Faith without works is dead faith, right? He's talking about some of those evidences, those fruits of salvation. But here it's talking about singular your work. What work is that? It's not external good works that those in Matthew 7 may 
profess, Lord, Lord, did we not? It's not those works. We're talking about kingdom work. The work of Christ. The work to which we are involved, not in displaying simply the fruits of salvation, but the work in declaring the Savior of salvation. There it is. This is the grace of God shown to man eternally and that they will be spared and enter into eternal life. Here we have in verse 10, God's righteousness defined and that he will not forget this work. This is to be understood of the solitary work of God in the life of the believer in which he saves, gives a new heart, a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone, a heart that is given to the righteousness of Christ, that is dedicated to the commandments of Christ out of love for the Savior who first loved them. This is to be understood as the work of God that is doing all that Hebrews chapter 6 is warning against. Not progressing. Not following. Not maturing. This is the work that God Himself is graciously giving to those to be laborers in a field. What are we called to do as Christians? Well, we may be gifted to do certain things like cut the grass, paint the church, to serve the people as deacons. We may be gifted in any number of areas, but Christians simply have one call to exalt Jesus Christ, to preach Jesus Christ. All of those Really that one call to even follow Jesus Christ, to imitate Jesus Christ, to be concerned for souls because of one thing, one purpose, that God be glorified. This is how. This is what he declares. If you will, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll see exactly what is being described here in chapter 6, verse 10. The work and the love which you have shown toward his name. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly bearing in mind your works. No, it says your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we proved to me among you for your sake. Work of faith. One work. One work of faith. Chapter 3. It's uh, used by Paul so many times to describe the faith and the hope and the love of Christ that is displayed in believers. The truth that believers are doing uh, not many works, but only one work. The work of God. The work. Any other work is not work, it's play. It's like some in the wilderness may be involved in. This is talking about the ministry, the, the, the ministry duty, ministerial duties of every Christian. Not the pastor, not just the elder, not the deacons. Every Christian. Every single one. How do we know? It's of faith. And if you claim to be of faith, this is the work. This is the work. Look again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know just as I have been fully known. Not leaving to question any of those who may have seemingly professed Christ and then fallen away. He says, but then I have been fully known as I also have been, it says. This is talking about one who is surely belonging to Christ. But now, verse 13, faith, hope, love. Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. These must abide. The work of Christ is putting off as an essence of a, as a flavor and a taste and a, a signifying characteristic. These things, faith, hope, and love, this is what it means to know Christ. Love being, of course, the greatest. Why is that? Because when we consider faith and hope, as I said this morning, the per perspective of verses 9 and 10 is talking about faith, something that has yet to happen, something that is to be fulfilled. But what's so wonderful about the love there? Why is it so great? What is, the, what is it about the work of God that is being declared in verse 10 that is so powerful, that is described by the love of God that Christ has gone to the cross? And what is that love? It's God. It's Christ. Beyond that, it is everlasting. It is the one thing, it is the one thing that we have of Christ that we're not waiting for at the consummation. We now have the love of God. Everlasting life is something that we also have, but we, we don't get to yet take possession of it until the death of these bodies, until the Savior comes back. But love is ours now to have and to hold and to give. Sounds a lot like marriage, doesn't it? Sounds exactly like it. Here this morning, when we look, good work a work of one who truly believes and truly trusts in Christ. It's not called many works, but it's called one work. And the, the wonderful part about it is that it's not a work uh, that comes by the effort of man on his own. It's not uh, done by man. It's not completed by man, but it's done with man by God who has created this vessel to do such a work. It's wrought in man, not by man. That's the wonderful part. The grace of God has been extended into eternity for those who truly walk by faith. Not by sight. Verse 10 declares in all ways that God is unlike man. Christ is man, but God is unlike fallen man. We don't forget except for those things that are beneficial. We, for, we, we love to forget the bad things. And we also forget those things that we're called to do as Christians. We forget obedience. We forget about suffering. We forget about charity, forget about offering, we forget about serving. God doesn't forget. Specifically, as we look at verse 10, it says, He is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love. He's saying here that the people who belong to Christ do have now that love it is an evidence it's a love for the word first and foremost because it is christ it's a love for the brethren secondly it's a love for the unregenerate it's a concern for the soul and it must begin with a concern for the glory of god then for your own concern for the for the concern that you have for your soul and if indeed christ has answered those needs and he has on the cross and you understand it then you must as well be concerned about the brethren then beyond the brethren they should uh, as one unit be concerned about the souls of the unregenerate 
Here it is. Some works accompanying salvation. Some work because of salvation. A ministry of work to the saints. This is not the fruits of the Spirit, but this is the fruit, singular, of knowing Christ, of having been eternally and forever loved. This is talking about true faith and true trust in Christ. Not forget the work and the love that you have shown toward His name, which is a reminder that everything that we do should be done as if it is unto the Lord, not unto man, not unto the recipient of a good deed. Listen, we declare, even here the text is saying that we are declaring and we are trusting the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately so that He is glorified and for no other reason. Salvation of of those who have yet to believe is a foregone conclusion of trusting in that Christ. It's a foregone conclusion of preaching that gospel. The ultimate reason is that God be first glorified. It says that you've ministered to the saints. And here's a little perspective of perseverance and instill ministering. It's tough to understand ministers that can walk away. Here the text declares that the one who is truly following Christ, the one who has true saving faith, the one who has better things concerning them, they are ministering, have ministered, and will still minister. Why? Because our duty as a Christian is not to simply a mortal being who when they're gone or when they move or when they change churches that our responsibility is over. No, our responsibility is to the Christ. He never ceases to be the Christ. He never ceases to be Lord. He never ceases to be the Jesus, the founding cornerstone of our faith, of our salvation. He never ceases to be the master who has given the task never ceases to be uh, in temporal terms the boss of you that's how kids like to say it boss of you you are a slave to righteousness we are to minister to the saints to be concerned for the saints because of the love of Christ still ministering still loving point of the picture is that I think it's been been said other ways to the pure all things are pure and the undefiled but to those who are iniquitous they soon like a dog return to their vomit you know that 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 is the reality here verse 10 is declaring that ones who are made holy by God which must be the case to enter into heaven, you must be righteous and you must be holy. They remain. They don't stop progressing. They don't stay stagnant. They don't plant themselves where they're at, but they are moving and working as true laborers in a real field, cultivating the seed of the gospel, doing whatever God has called them to do, whether it be to plant, to water, to prepare, to reap. They are moving. And they are at no time without remaining holy to become righteous because of Christ, to have imputed to them the righteousness of Christ, and to remain in that righteousness. There's a whole lot to discount easy believism, to count works righteousness thrown out the door this is trusting in christ and knowing that christ is the source of our perseverance we don't have to persevere christ is causing us to persevere in one sense the hope that we have in christ is so sure that 
we will go to heaven those who truly know him we will be present with the lord the perseverance is just proof to those who come after us that that is indeed what he did again the message there is relying upon christ and trusting upon christ and never moving from that foundational principle but putting on display that love and that faith and that one singular work. For it is the evidence and it is the mark and it is that which we must so desire if we truly have Christ. To love His Word, His people, of course Him because He is the Word. To love righteousness, and to hate iniquity. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you once again, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, serves as a testimony and as a beacon of light pointing us to the cross or that we may not trust in the flesh and trust in the efforts of man, but that we may abide in your everlasting love. God, the love that has crucified the Christ, the love that has risen him from the dead the love that has proven his obedience unto the father or we just thank you that that is a present and eternal possession for those of us who know the christ or may we at all times remember these things yeah may we always question our desire of the love that we have for our savior the love that we have for his word, the love that we have for his preaching. God, let us ask that question. Let us, if need so, be convicted by it. Or that you would continue to persevere us. Or that you would move us, sanctify us, and cleanse us. That we may be more like our Savior. Lord, we just ask that you as well would bless uh, the rest of this day, the evening service. God, the meal that we will so soon partake of, Lord, we just thank you for it. Lord, and acknowledge that uh, even the smallest details of it, God, are provisioned by you. And without you, Lord, we would have nothing, either temporal or, or eternal. We just ask that you would be glorified, and that you would even now glorify yourself, Lord, that the heavenly host would declare uh, the wonders of your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.